This is the Education Gadfly Show. Does anybody dream of being a sociologist? Is that is that really happening? It exists only as a dream. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Carissa Miller. Carissa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. I'm happy to be here with you. Just a mile down the road from you. <laughs> exactly. This is so inside DC here. Chris and I are neighbors. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of an ed policy community here out here in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, for example, Carmel Martin, uh, who is uh, has been at the Domestic Policy Council, uh, used to be an assistant secretary of education. I think I just heard saw is now going to go work for the vice president. Uh, she lives right a- across the road. Uh, many other luminaries in our world. We are inside the bubble now, but that was not always the case for you, Carissa. You are not. It was not. You're relatively new to the bubble. Well, it's it's been nine years now, Mike, but I've moved out <laughs> of DC. So I don't know. I think people might say I'm I'm moved into the bubble and fully absorbed. So. I guess you are. Well, that's because uh, not before nine years ago, you were a deputy superintendent at the Idaho State Department of Education. But uh, since then, you have been at the Council of Chief State School Officers, and for the past several years, you have been the CEO of CCSSO. That's pretty cool. You could do some kind of rap to that about I, being a we CEO should do of that CCSSO. Next time. I, it, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have you take the lead on that. Mike. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential uh, for that. And also joining us, as always, my colleague, David Griffith. David, welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> no, the, our, our audience doesn't even know that you, boom, just appeared just right on cue, perfectly timed. So welcome, everybody. Well, Carissa is joining us because uh, CCSSO, which again, is it represents the state superintendents, really the state education agencies, the state departments of ed around the country. They are out with a new analysis looking at the big federal funding that has gone out to the states in the last few years with the pandemic relief. That analysis is called States Leading, How State Education Agencies Are Leveraging the ESSER Set-Aside. Man, you wonked that one up, but I love it, Carissa. We're going to talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, so Carissa, it's important, this ESSER set-aside, it is a little wonky, but it's important because you are looking at the part of the federal uh, relief funding that is going to state departments of education and is not just passed through you all to school districts, right? That's right. Uh, and, and looking at how that money is being spent. So remind us, how much money are we talking about? Well, we're talking about over all three packages, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute, is about $19 billion. And that represents just 10% of all of the money that was sent out to states and districts. States took have a 10% set aside, and that's, that's what we're talking about today. We're not talking about the 90% that went to districts. Still a big chunk of money, and it doesn't also include there was some money that just went to governors, right? They got Those are the gear funds, that's right. Yeah. We have okay. different acronyms for everything, Mike. I think that could be part of the wrap. That is definitely, it's a thing in education. Look, Carissa, you know, there's always going to be skepticism out there uh, when there's this huge amount of federal money gets pushed out the door. A lot of people, I don't think just on the right, I think in general may say, all right, here we go again. Let's see if these states and school districts squander this money uh, or actually put it to good use. So 
you know, I know you represent uh, these state departments of ed and state superintendents who make your case that at least at the state level, the states are spending this money wisely. To your point, transparency is important to anybody, right? Like, and we're talking about federal money, and we take that very seriously, and as do our state chiefs. And so part of why we put this COVID relief data project together was because we wanted to have more transparency quicker. Because a lot of times the money that is reported back to the federal government is after it's spent. And so it's it's lagged. It's quite a ways away. And so we've been working with our states to make sure we have that transparency. Can I just give you some high-level places where we know that states are spending this $19 billion? First of all, the first deadline was September 30th for ESSER 1. So that was when you had to have it obligated. And obligated means you have signed a contract or you know how you're going to spend that money. We can account for, and that was two months before, uh, 94% of that money had been obligated or spent in contracts. We think that it's very likely that it's all that money. And we're seeing the same kinds of trends with the next two packages that have later deadlines. But what we're seeing is the vast majority of funding is being spent on tutoring or accelerated learning mm-hmm. projects, about $4.2 billion. And then out-of-school time programs, about $2.9 billion. A lot of money went towards summer school or additional uh, learning opportunities for kids. We saw about $1.3 billion on high-quality curriculum and instruction. So mm-hmm. we can talk about cost sharing or economies of scale where states might buy a, a license and then uh, have mm-hmm. the districts buy into that. Um, okay. that. And then $1.1 billion on digital divide and remote learning, about $1 billion on student and staff well-being, which we know is a huge, a huge issue right now. All right. So that all sounds pretty good, uh, but help us understand what, what this really looks like, because it's the states, right? And so I don't know, for example, like how does a state do something like accelerated learning when you're still several steps away from the classroom or even the tutoring? Is that finding a way to get money directly into the pockets of parents or setting up programs? What, what, what does this actually mean? There are a few selected programs that went directly to parents, but for the most part, it's setting up like a tutoring course. So I'll give you some examples of a few okay. states who've done that. You know, Tennessee set up the Tennessee All Corps, where they use state resources to match. They matched with LEAs, and then they worked with community organizations and put tutors uh, in, in various places. Arkansas did the same, same kind of thing. They had uh, what they call Arkansas Tutoring Corps, and they recruited people like college students, uh, retired teachers, and other community members. So like the big issue is, you know, if it's just one community looking for tutors, sometimes we've had trouble finding people to do the tutoring. I mean, the real, real issue. South Carolina uh, worked with their libraries to create virtual tutoring across mm-hmm. the state. So it would be accessible across the state. It wouldn't be just selective to your district. So a lot of districts um, are likely doing the tutoring too, but those are some of the state examples. And you explained on the curriculum, maybe buying a whole license, but what about accelerating accelerated learning? I mean, to me, that's a curriculum and instruction play. I mean, that's the notion of how teachers are actually trying to keep kids on grade level, filling in the gaps as you go rather than doing remediation. So do you have a sense of what that bucket might have gone for? It's again, back to the high dosage tutoring work. Some of it is around summer school. So intensive summer school opportunities or before school, after school kinds of programs where there'd be more intense support and they use that to deploy it from a state level so that it could be accessible across districts. 
I have seen a handful of states, Ohio is one, I think Indiana is another, that have tried to put at least some money into the pockets of parents, uh-huh. you know, which is strange to me is not a crazy idea, right? I mean, especially if you limit it, you say, okay, it's not just for anything, but say for tutoring, there are, you know, there is an industry out there of online tutoring companies. I've been doing some research in this world myself. Gosh, they cost a lot of money, uh, but they also seem ready. You want to pay their whatever, 75 bucks an hour, they will find you a tutor for your kid. Why not just give the money to the parents and let them go out and get that tutoring themselves rather than kind of work through all these different layers of bureaucracy? A lot of the, some of the gear funds were targeted in that way specifically, but I'll give you one example on a state that's using some micro grants out of the, these specific ESSER money that I were talking about, and that's Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, they have Indiana Learns. It's a statewide enrichment program that provides qualifying students $1,000 to boost math or reading abilities with high quality tutoring or other approved activities. It does go towards specific things, but it allows for some mm-hmm. choices there. Uh, David, what, what's on your mind? Well, it all seems to boil down to tutoring, <laughs> unless I'm missing something. And I'm not opposed to that, but it, I hope it works. Yeah, um, that, let, me, let me just say, so the first set of money really went towards the, the bolstering of computers and internet and you know PPE, those kinds of things. And so we saw that start to taper off and more go towards high quality instructional materials and intensive support for students. It's coupled on those two things. It's interesting. It always seems to wind up this way somehow, Mike, where we're looking for more people precisely when they aren't necessarily available. You know, a few years ago, you probably could have scooped good tutors up off the sidewalk. It really feels like everybody's got a job already, right? I want to be optimistic. I'll be curious to see how the quality shakes out and what kind of people they're able to get in the current labor market, because it feels very tight. Um, and it feels like something that isn't necessarily people's first option right now. I still feel like we're at a very high grain level. And I'm struggling to like, to know what I should be picturing when someone says tutor, right? Am I picturing someone out of college? Am I picturing someone who's been working as a professional tutor for one of these companies? Am I picturing someone who's between other jobs? You know, I don't, I don't know as much as I want to about the tutoring workforce, especially the one we're just kind of creating on the fly here? I think it's a combination of all those things. I think you're right to ask the question. You know, some of these statewide programs have set up criteria. And so they they work through that to make sure that they have quality tutors. But, you know, no doubt to your point about wanting to see results, I, I think we're right in that same area and wanting to see what comes out. We're seeing some early state assessment returns that are showing some incremental gains. You know, we're not surpassing where we were pre-pandemic, and we know we've got a long ways to go, but we are seeing a number of states showing some gains from the previous year where we saw huge drops. We're starting to see some gains come back. States are investing in evaluation systems. And like, if you look at North Carolina, they have a great dashboard that talks about, because they want to measure impact. And we're just a little early in the game to be measuring the impact on that. So, for example, West Virginia has this summer program, and they had about 30,000 students that served 476 sites. They showed that 64% of uh, students maintained or gained on their English language arts assessments, and 59% maintained or gained on math assessments. Those are encouraging numbers. They show that investing in some of those things are helping us move kids along, but Mm -hmm. we've got some big gaps. 
I do want to say there's other programs that are not maybe in some of these big top line numbers, and that's the career pathway options that we're seeing. So Colorado, for example, is investing in a rural cohort that allows for these career pathways or accelerated learning opportunities for students. Whereas in big cities, you can get companies to build those centers. This is an opportunity where the state is investing with those districts to provide options for kids in rural areas. So that's another example. It doesn't show up necessarily in like our, our key areas here. I'm encouraged. I think we still have to remain somewhat skeptical. I, I, mean, I would expect nothing less from you. I, look, and, you know, see where the gadfly and all that. And, you know, it's hard to figure out, you know, are these programs, are they going to scale? Are they going to have an impact? Are they going to go to the kids who need it most? I mean, all that is always hard to do. And then, you know, you mentioned the test score results. I have been looking at some of those headlines coming out of state departments of education. Some of them sounded awfully cheerful. Uh, and uh, some might say uh, there was some real spin there. Of course, we have the NAEP coming out in just a few weeks. So we'll have a good audit. We'll have a check on whether those states are making as much progress as they say they are. As much as we all want to see, uh, have some optimism, because it's been so bleak and, and discouraging the last couple of years, we also have to be, be honest about just what a big hole we find ourselves in. I agree with you. And I, it's a healthy dose of skepticism. But the choice is to like, we have to move forward. We have to figure out yes. something and we have to put the money towards doing something that's going to help kids. And we know that literacy and evidence base, we know high quality materials, we know mm-hmm. those things make a difference for kids. And so investing in that is, uh, is a good choice, I think. All right. Well, well said. We'll leave it there. Carissa Miller, again, the Chief Executive Officer of the Council of Chief State School Officers, or CCSSO. Thank you for joining us. We'll have to have you on soon, or at least we can grab a drink on the back deck. That sounds great, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Thanks so much, Carissa. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. We just had a nice chat with Carissa Miller about how states are spending their ESSER dollars. Of course, David, what we didn't get to talk about was, you know, the bulk of the money, the, what is it, 90% of the money is the districts get to spend. And there, I think it's much more of a dumpster fire. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm all about demanding money and then immediately criticizing how it's used, Mike. That's what you do. Yes. As a left of center policy wonk. Yeah, that does sound right up your alley. I mean, what the states are spending the money on, it does, it sounds good. I mean, Amber, it was, it was things, you know, it was tutoring and it was buying high quality instructional materials. Well, mostly it was tutoring. I mean, hard to argue with that. Yeah. We, we've got some evidence that tutoring is, is a good thing. So yeah. we've got to latch on to everything we have evidence for, I guess. Better than the districts just spreading the money around to everybody. We're in kind of a, a no-win situation, honestly, because we're trying to help a generation of kids that has fallen off the wagon quickly. And spending billions of dollars quickly, that's not how you do it, right? You shouldn't, full stop, in general. And so I don't see how we can win. Why do we have to spend it so quickly? Yeah, that is in part because of, of the law. The law gave a deadline, and, and states and districts have been asking for the allowance to spread it out over longer periods of time, You know, including like if they want to do big HVAC repair things or overhaul or buy new HVAC systems. There's backlog. And I think the feds have most, so far mostly said no, or there's been like a little bit of leeway, but not much, I think. I kind of so, think they should say yes, personally. Yeah. I don't know. If the unions basically want them to say no, because the unions want this money to go into the pockets of teachers as quickly as possible. 
which is, look, what their job is as unions is to make that happen. So there you go. That's my take. But we're not here to talk just about people using federal money inappropriately. Uh, We're here to talk about whatever research study you have ready for us today. So what is that, Amber? I have got a random experiment. It examines the impact of an information campaign in high school that provides students with detailed information concerning the cost, academic selectivity, and occupational prospects of choosing various fields in college. or for work in the labor market. Unfortunately, this one takes place in Italy, but I thought it was relevant. Why is that unfortunate? (laughs) It's a pretty cool study. I wish it had taken place here, but it's relevant to America, I do believe. They basically said that given that high school counseling is patchy, non-existent, or low quality, that the intervention is meant to supply high school kids with better information in order to make better decisions after graduating. Analysts drew a random sample of 62 schools from all high schools in four Italian provinces located in geographically different areas. And then they randomly assigned half to the treatment group and half to the control group. The final sample included 475 classes and over 9,000 high school students. Uh, Intervention in the treatment involved 18 instructors visiting each class of seniors during school in each school for three meetings at two hours each. So these kids had six hours of this intervention. In the first meeting, all students in both groups complete a questionnaire asking about their family background, previous schooling, beliefs and plans about higher education. I kind of wish that had been administrative data, but, but it wasn't. It was asking the kids. Then in the treated schools, after that, the intervention followed. So the instructors provided detailed information about the costs and opportunities of financial aid, procedures to apply. Here's what you got to do. Regardless of whether they intended to enroll or not, each student had the chance to estimate his or her cost in terms of fees, transportation, meals, student materials, and housing. And then the second and third meetings, they received information on the following the economic returns of various degrees compared to high school degrees and in the same province as theirs the risk of dropping out of a university and delayed graduation, and the things that predict those things, like your previous academic performance and your parents' education. And they were also given the opportunity to figure out their earnings according to different university choices and majors. And then they received information on vocational and non-academic training in terms of those available opportunities and the local labor market. That sounds like pretty good information to have. They found a decrease of two percentage points in enrollment among weaker fields of study, meaning those that yielded low returns, uh, like sociology, psychology, they named some of those lower return fields. But a closer look shows that that was driven by females from highly educated families who are now choosing more lucrative careers and fields. And then they followed them and they discovered that they didn't end up taking a hit academically. So they still did well, even though they presumably picked a little more rigorous field. They also find that treated males from low educated families are more likely to enter the labor market. So data indicate that they and everyone else estimated the monetary returns to higher ed were, again, they overestimated the monetary returns to higher ed in their early surveys. Moreover, the decrease in enrollment was concentrated in areas where higher ed cost more and where the labor market offered better opportunities to those with high school degrees. 
They also looked to see if the additional information was detrimental, but found over the long term that treated students displayed similar academic performance and higher employment rates. All right, Petrilli, this is the acid test. You think this is a good thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think so. What did I miss? Why shouldn't I? You want to discourage kids actively from going to college and pursuing their dreams. Wasting their time and money. Does anybody dream of being a sociologist? Does that that really happen? It exists only as a dream, right? (laughs) It's the reality that is questioned. With the caveats that, yes, it's in Italy, and we're not sure how much this translates, but probably pretty well. I think it's encouraging. The gender differences are interesting. More information is better, right? And people can make up their own minds. I think information is one thing. A second thing would be if there was some serious nudging going on, or like you Mm -hmm. said, discouraging. I think you want to be careful about that. I think we've made mistakes in the other direction. There was a lot of nudging going on a few years ago, nudging kids to go to college. And folks like Jay Green and others have questioned whether all of those nudges were actually in the best interest of the kids. So I think we got to just be careful, give people information. It's also my sense that we're not seeing huge differences either. I mean, I've always thought with this kind of stuff, kids, by the time they're in high school, they have a good sense of who they are and what they're good at. And it's not like you hear that, oh, jobs in coding pay a lot of money, so I should do that. But you feel like, I don't actually like coding or have those skills. I'm actually more of a humanities person. You mean being a tech billionaire pays well? Why didn't someone tell me, right? <laughs> We're working for tech billionaires pays well. Right. I don't know, right, Amber? I mean, these are modest effects, right? They are modest effects. They are, but these patterns are pretty strong, right? This is what was driving these modest effects. I mean, there's definitely some gender differences here. And, and you know, in the, in the views of the analyst, it seems like the female uh, was pretty good, you know, because these fields that they were going into were unrepresented by females, mm-hmm. a little bit more STEM oriented. You're helping a gender disparity there. Maybe what we need, you know, is uh, now that we're getting more serious about career readiness in high school and helping kids see what actually where they can make real money is then you know, we should pitch the electives and even many of the humanities as saying, hey, you also want to have a good life and and some hobbies and you don't want to be boring as an adult. So let's get you, you know, to learn some of this other stuff, you know, as a nice pecuniary returns to higher education. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you dream of being a sociologist, okay, how can you use those kinds of skills in your volunteer work? You know, how might you give back I was on a radio interview yesterday. This is slightly relevant. Um, and talking about career technical education, at the very end, the guy asked me, well, what was your uh, major and what did you teach? And I said, English. And, you know, he was very silent for a long while and said, well, I, well, I guess you need to know Dickens in life. I mean, do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, Honey, yes, you need to be well-rounded and, and read seminal works of literature. You get my point. I feel yeah. like sometimes everybody lumps, you know, any kind of thing that's not STEM oriented into this smushy soft skill bucket or something. Yeah. I always feel like you, then you have these English teachers that feel pressure to try to make the case for things like English by saying, well, you're going to need to write memos and you're going to need to write emails and reports in your job. All true mm-hmm. for some jobs, right? But again, that doesn't tell you why you should read Dickens and Shakespeare, right? Let's just make the case. Make the humanistic case and say it'll make your life better. 
I think the point is that you should go into sociology with your eyes open, mm-hmm. right? There's actually nothing wrong with sociology either. I mean, I mean, in all, in all honesty, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we were to, to eliminate everything that doesn't make sense financially, strictly speaking, we would get rid of a lot of college, honestly, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't be left with a very interesting place. China does that, right? They only allow certain majors that are lucrative and, you know, and going to help the country. So yes, I agree. But people have to know. They have to know. We should tell people. We, we should not keep this information secret. All right. Well, now people know. Uh, thanks to you, Amber. So thank you for that. That is all the time we've got for this week. And so until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.